Good evening and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Koch and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. In it, I talk to someone who is a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. And I'm very happy to say that my guest tonight is Benjamin Zander, who's visiting us from Boston in the USA. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great delight to be here again. And it's wonderful to have you here. You've made several visits to South Africa, but this one was rather special because you were given a, a Lifetime Achievement Award by whom? Well, APSA, the bank, um, sponsored the event, and it's a yearly event of the Jewish Forum, and they pick out nine people, essentially, South Africans who've made a big impact on the, on the country. And then frequently, or occasionally, should I say, they offer what they call a special, extraordinary lifetime achievement <laughs> award. And they gave it to Nelson Mandela, and they gave it to Bishop Tutu. And when I saw those names and the wife was on the list, I thought, I better come <laughs> and pick it up. And it was a wonderful event. There were a thousand people there. Yeah. And I was working with the Johannesburg Youth Orchestra, which is wonderful, and gave a keynote about uh, about possibility, essentially using the orchestra. And then I've done several other things, including I'm happy to say being in the in the bush for three days. Uh, it was just incredible. Well, that's that's wonderful too. Yes. And that's why you come to Africa yes. partly. Well, yeah, exactly. And and when you say about possibility, you're you've written a book. Uh, with Rosamond Stone, Zander, about the art of right, possibility. Right. That is essentially a handbook in how to keep possibility alive. And that's in one's daily life and daily conversations and work. And it's something that I share with vast numbers of people. And uh, it's become a movement, actually, a worldwide movement. The book is in 18 languages and sold all over the world. And, and it presents... Actually, a very simple choice, if I can just tell you what that yes. choice is. Two shoe salesmen come to Africa in the 1900s to see if they can sell shoes from Manchester. And one of them sends a telegram back to Manchester saying, quote, situation hopeless, stop, they don't wear shoes. The other one says, glorious opportunity, they don't have any shoes yet. And that choice is a choice that everybody can make at every moment of their lives and out of it we've built a, a whole philosophy a whole practice of life and it's not positive thinking which it often sounds like positive thinking is pretending things are great when you know they're not uh, the the possibility model produces something new and a story I love to tell, and if I may take a moment, my father was a refugee from Nazi Germany, lost everything, lost his mother in Auschwitz and other eight other members of his family and his house and his belongings and his profession. He came to England and was interned. The English interned all the Germans. They called them enemy aliens. And there he was on the Isle of Man with 2,000 other men, mostly in the same state of having lost everything and therefore very depressed and very fearful, he looked around and said, there's a lot of intelligent people here. We should have a university. And he started a university in that camp. They had 40 lectures a week. There were no books, no paper, no no blackboard or chalk. But lots of intelligent people. Exactly. Yeah. And that's possibility. Yeah. If he'd gone around saying, isn't this great? 
somebody would have hit him in the face. Yeah. In other words, it's not positive thinking. It's finding a pathway which will lead to some outcome which is both unexpected and life-giving. And, and that's exactly, I think, what happened here 25 years exactly. ago in South Africa. Exactly. Yes. And yeah. in fact, South Africa is a possibility country. It's an idea and championed and led by Mandela. And he had that idea and he did not allow himself to get into that depressive mode of complaining and whining and worrying and fearful and it isn't going well. And yeah. he just constantly spoke possibility. And I had the opportunity to to meet him. And in fact, I said my first conversation with him, I said that I was very honored that overwhelmed to meet him and that he was the first conductor of symphonia and he said oh what is that and i said symphonia the sounding together of all the voices i said you didn't lead one party against another you listened for all the voices and you led the whole orchestra and he got that big smile on his face and he said i like that <laughs> so we've been Living out of that idea, I've come back to South Africa where this morning I talked to 500 people at APSA and reactivated the idea that we live in a world of possibility, particularly South Africa, and that yes, there are difficulties, yes, the things we have to overcome, like my father in the internment camp, but how about starting university? <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> so, stories. Yeah. Let's listen to your first choice of music, which is uh, by Casado. Or is it Casado? It's Casado. 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 He's a, he's a Catalan. He came into my life when I was 14 years old uh, in very dramatic fashion. And he invited me to study with him in, Flo in, actually in Siena, first in Florence, then in Siena. And he was a great, great, great cellist, one of the very greatest cellists ever. And he was my teacher for five years. And he formed not only my way of playing but actually my way of being the sound and is this him playing this is him playing in 1927 on gut strings in a way that we almost never can hear anymore and it takes us back to an era of intimacy and tenderness and beauty and clarity which has virtually been lost but it's a beautiful way of introducing this moment that sound, that exquisite, intensely beautiful sound is what I strive for every time I conduct an orchestra. I have that sound. It was imprinted on my DNA in five years with this man, traveling with him, turning pages for him, really in that old style of an apprentice with a great master. How did you come across him? Well, he had a student who was born on the same day as me. He was Indian, actually Silanese, and he thought we had the same horoscope. So he went back to Florence and he said, and when we played to each other, we played the same piece, the Elegy of Foray. And he was very surprised and, and he went back and told Casado that there was somebody in London with the same horoscope. And so Casado called up one day and just said, come over and play. And he came three hours late. He said, come at three. He arrived at six. He, did, he was Spanish. He didn't say anything. He said, okay, play. And so I played, and then he invited me to study with him. And at the end of the summer, I went to him and said, all right, what should I work on? Because I'm going back to school. And he said, why? And I said, well, I have to go to school. He said, why? You want to be a cellist? So I asked my parents, and my father went to see the high master of St. Paul's school. 
And the high master said, Dr. Zander, how many times is your son going to get an offer like this? And so he agreed that I should go. And instead of staying for one year, I stayed for five. Never went back to school and then went on to university and then came to the United States. And um, But I, I just want to dwell for a moment on the significance of this man in my life, in the forming of my musical personality. He, he played with a freedom that was very, very rare. There's a piece here, a tiny piece which he wrote called Requiebros, which was one of the pieces that I played a lot in my recitals. And when I went to play for him the first time I played it, he lived in one of the uh, 11th century towers at the Ponte Vecchio, and I climbed up the stairs to the top room, and I played it for him. It was at 11 o'clock at night, the kind of time that he used to have me over. And and I played. He said, no, 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 and then he played. And I I said, but Maestro, that's not what you wrote. He said, you can't write this music down. It was like flamenco style. And so I want you to just hear the master himself playing his own piece. It's Requiebros, which is tender uh, feelings between lovers. We're now going to hear the Elgar Cello Concerto. This was one of my party pieces. I played it all the time. And it's one of the very greatest works written for cello. Elgar's final work, a very deep work. And I want to tell you that it's the most successful and most watched on the interpretation classes that I do in Boston, but are now online. You can go online, and it's called Interpretation of Music and Lessons in Life. And there's a young cellist who plays the first movement, and that's been seen now by nearly 500,000 people. And it's become one of the most popular classes, not master classes, we call them interpretation. I go into the meaning of the piece and how to listen to it, and people love that. So if people want to find out more about music and get a deeper insight, open the door, break the code of classical music, this will be a wonderful way to go. So you put in interpretation of music, and then my name, which is Benjamin Zander, and then Elgar, and this will come up, the Elgar first movement, and this performance is by Jacqueline Dupre. And that was an extraordinary performance in itself. Extraordinary, yeah. absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I knew Jackie quite well. We played together. We did the two cello quintetta Schubert together. She was of uh, one of a kind. Yeah, an extraordinary one. musician. Yeah. Right, yeah. an extraordinary person and died tragically of mono of multiple sclerosis out of 29, yeah. I think it was. And there's quite a cello connection because John Bobby Rolly was, was also, also a cellist, cellist yes. Yeah. And also I knew him quite well. It, it, it's just such a beautiful performance. What is it about the cello? Because it seems that it's very close to the human yeah. voice. Yeah. Well, it goes lower than any singer. Sarastro goes down to that same low C. No soprano can go as high. So it covers the spectrum of the human voice and seems to appeal to composers to represent humanity. And some of the greatest expressions of a student of mine became the first cellist of the Metropolitan opera he's still there jerry grossman and he said the great thing about being first cellist of the metropolitan opera is that in an opera whenever somebody dies there's a cello solo <laughs> but also there's something else about the cello which is that it's it's held very close to yeah. 
the heart. It's a very physical yeah. very thing. Very physical. And, yeah. and Casado himself played with, and Jackie too, with that incredibly physical sense that she was in love with that instrument, caressing it and eking and drawing the sound out in a way that is mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing. And at what stage of your life did you stop playing the cello, or do you still play? No, I rarely play now. I got a disease. I couldn't produce calluses on the fingers, and so I couldn't go on playing the cello. It's too painful, and I actually had blood on the fingerboard. But I played this concerto, and I loved it, and I still teach it very often. I've performed it with Yo-Yo Ma and with others. It's, it's one of the great works of the musical literature, perfectly written with a perfect orchestration, every note is heard, and here's a bit of the first movement. So now, I think it's important to hear from Beethoven. About 45 years ago, I performed the Beethoven Fifth Symphony in Boston with my civic orchestra, that was before the Boston Philharmonic, and we did Beethoven at his word. In other words, we took his metronome marks uh, literally and m argued in music that Beethoven knew what he was doing. And this is a performance not with my own orchestra, but with the Philharmonia Orchestra. I've done a series of recordings with them, and it's the first movement at Beethoven's tempo, which is very clearly marked 108, as uh, the metronome mark, and it's extremely thrilling at this speed. It's but dry. fast. It's fast. But the clue to understanding it is not that it's ba 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 but ba 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 da ba 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 da ba 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 Knocking yeah. on the door, on fate, yeah. you know, knocking on the door with fate. So it became a different thing. People were stunned by it. This was in 1972. And at that point, nobody had heard Beethoven at his metronome marks. Then many people followed on afterwards, Norrington and, and John Gardner. And perhaps what was interesting also was that that in Beethoven's time was when the metronome was invented. Exactly. Yes, exactly. By Meltzel. Meltzel was yes. a friend of his. He invented the metronome. It's very unlikely that he gave him a faulty metronome. <laughs> Moreover, the fourth movement of the Fifth Symphony is played too fast by most people. It's marked 84, which is slower than most people play it. So it's nonsense to say that Beethoven's metronome was inaccurate or that he was too deaf or blind, whatever, <laughs> to see it. Um, so this is Beethoven's first movement of the Fifth Symphony at the tape temper which Beethoven indicated. With you conducting. With me conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. I'm talking to Benjamin Zander on people of note tonight. He's been visiting South Africa to receive an award, a Lifetime Achievement Award, but he's also a very well-known conductor, and he conducts the uh, Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, but also you have your own youth yes. orchestra. Spectacular youth orchestra. Yeah. I'm so excited about this. And you like year. working with young people. Oh, I just adore it. I adore it. Because they're open, they're excited, they'll give you their uh, everything. They'll give you everything. They'll give you attention. They'll give you passion. They'll give you... And, and one of the things you say is that you like to give people 
A's well, before they start. Yeah, even. this is a particularly dramatic thing that I came <laughs> up with because I was worried because so many of my students at the New England Conservatory, graduate students, were so anxious and fearful about their grades, about the competitions, about the uh, auditions that they were going through. They were just in fear. So they couldn't play the music freely. Bach and Beethoven and Schubert couldn't play through them because they were so tied up in knots with fear. So I gave them the A, the grade, at the beginning of the year before they started. So they started. didn't have to stress anymore. Exactly. And, but I did one thing which made it even more powerful, which is I asked them to write a letter in the first two weeks addressed to me, but dated May of the following year when the class ended. And the letter has to start with these words, Dear Mr. Sander, I got my A because. Then they write a letter describing who they will have become by the May of the end of the year uh, to justify this extraordinary grade. And when I come in to teach the class, that's the person I teach. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a game, but it's a beautiful game. And I'll tell you one very funny thing. One of the students wrote, she was so excited in her letter. She wrote so excited about her first child was being born. And I said to her when the class got together, I said, Anne, you should bring your husband to class someday. And she said, oh, I haven't met him yet. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So the idea is to break yeah, up all yeah, the yeah. tension and the fear and yeah. the anxiety and live into possibility yeah. with passion and joy. And they did that. So uh, now I want to share with you a, a, a beautiful moment. It's a short excerpt. Brahms' First Symphony. When we think of the Brahms' First Symphony, we think of boom, boom, boom on the timpani. Sometimes that's all you hear. But I'm very, you remember what I said about Mandela saying you have to hear all the voices. That's the secret of conducting and of great orchestra playing. And in the Brahms first, where we're so used to hearing the pounding timpani, there, at that same moment, there's a line going up in the first violins and cellos and a line going down in the winds and the violas, which is almost inaudible on most recordings because the timpani is so loud. In this recording of the introduction, I just want people, this is the Boston Philharmonic, in which you hear the timpani and you, even if you listen carefully, can hear the contrabassoon at the bottom going boom, boom, boom. But what you really hear is this tension and struggle between the violins going up with the cellos and the, the winds coming down with the violas and it's it's a moment of almost unbearable tragedy and glory it's one of the the greatest moments in all of music and thank goodness you can hear every voice so here comes part of symphony number no. one in c minor by johannes brahms played by the boston philharmonic orchestra and conducted by ben zander my guest in people of note tonight that was symphony number no. one the introduction only the introduction, one of the greatest moments in all of classical music, that whole symphony is just of titanic greatness. And that introduction, played by the Boston Philharmonic at a recent concert, I was very, very happy that we could hear every voice. And I could hear the contrabassoon. Actually, yeah. the contrabassoon plays an incredible important role in that symphony. And I think in that performance, it brought to light everything that Brahms had written, and that is the ultimate pleasure and duty of a conductor. Now, one of the things that you do or have done during your lifetime is to 
speak to distinguished groups of people. I remember the, the first time I heard about you was when I think it was at one of the Davos yeah. uh, meetings of sort of leaders of the world. world. And, you'd, and uh, one of our South African um, captains of industry, Bobby Godsell, came back and he said he wanted to tell me that he'd heard you there. Yeah. And you've obviously done quite a lot of that Huge in your amount. time. Huge yes. amount. When, it, when did you first discover that you could do that? Well, it, it turned out that, I mean, it's a long story of actually how the event happened, but the YPO organization, which is lead, world leaders, uh, uh, gathered together in Boston, and I did a talk for them, and I brought them into the orchestra. Was that the first one you That did? was the yeah. first one. And uh, I brought them into the orchestra. There were 150 presidents sitting in the middle of the Boston Philharmonic, and we were actually rehearsing Beethoven's Ninth. And they were so excited. One of them said, I've jumped out of an aeroplane. I've done deep-sea diving. I've been on a bucket out of a building. Uh, nothing compared to sitting in the second violin section of the Beethoven Ninth. A rehearsal of the Beethoven Ninth, and, and out of that came an invitation, actually five invitations, to talk to corporations. And I've been asked all these years, over and over and over again. By so, in a way, that has become like a secondary yeah. job for you. Right. Your your first job and love is right. conducting, right, and teaching, and teaching. Yeah. But and actually, what you are doing is teaching anyway. Exactly, yeah. it's all teaching. It's all teaching. Yeah. And you know the word maestro. Everybody thinks of the great maestro. No, maestro means teacher. That's all it is. Every school teacher, every elementary school is a maestro. Teacher is a maestro, right? Magister. So we, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't be too too grand, right? <laughs> exactly. And uh, during this time, I've actually turned the whole model of leadership upside down because the conductor doesn't make a sound. So his job is to enable other people to be powerful. So awakening possibility in other people has become the hallmark of my model of leadership. And I give a lot of authority to the players. And is this all described in your yes. book? The book, The Art of Possibility, describes the practices which enable you to lead a life of possibility at all times. And of being a servant, yeah, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a wonderful story. Yeah. And, and, but along the way, you've also made quite a lot of recordings. Yes. Yeah. I've made 11 recordings with the, with the Philharmonia Orchestra. And I'd love to share something from that because that's a very big part of my life. What I do in these recordings is, first of all, I have a world-class orchestra, and then I add a disc in which I explain the music for the lay audience, in other words, for people who are not steeped in this music, although many people who know a lot find them stimulating and sometimes quite inspiring, but it's designed for the person in the street, the person who loves to read Shakespeare but has no idea what to make of a Mahler symphony. And those discs have become very, very popular, and one of my favorite is the Mahler fourth and so i thought since this is a short movement it's very hard to find a short movement in mala but the last movement is very beautiful and if i can just say one word about the singer the the child in mala's fourth symphony is the child who died of starvation in the in the song that he wrote about the starving child and and by the time the mother had baked the bread the child was dead he wakes up in heaven and what does he find food of course and so it's a description of the most lavish extravagance of all kinds of food and wine and animals and all sorts of things and the young 
singer who sang that now very famous Camilla Tilling was at the outset of her career and I coached her in this movement and at one point she started dancing around the room in the most delightful way and yet I think that youthful spirit you can hear in her voice I think it is as convincing maybe the most convincing version of the last movement of the Mahler Fourth that I know because she got so perfectly the spirit at the end she sings about the food of the soul, which is, of course, beyond eating and drinking and dancing. It's the beauty of music and that music takes us to a place that, uh, which we call heaven. That was Camilla Tilling singing the fourth movement of Mahler's Symphony Number no. 4 with the Philharmonia Orchestra, which was one of the first recordings I made with them and one that I think gets to the heart of what Mahler's music is about. Isn't it interesting, though, because Mahler also wrote the Kindertorten Lieder yeah. about death of children. Yeah. I mean, he had quite a tragic life yeah. himself. He did. He yeah. lost eight brothers and sisters during his own life, which explains his obsession with death, or at least in part explains his obsession with death. He lost his daughter, and he never recovered. His four-year-old daughter died of the uh, meningitis, I think, of one of those diseases which now we can cure. And Marlow, of course, himself died of a disease we could have cured now. Actually, a few months later, the yeah. penicillin was invented. But also suffered uh, from the onslaught of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which could not have been easy for him. No, in his he actually yeah. had to convert to Catholicism yeah. in order to get the job of being the conductor of the orchestra in Vienna. But still, he was subjected to terrible anti-Semitism. And he also had the terrible tragedy of learning of his own death uh, because of heart failure. And he was fired from his job, and he lost his daughter. I mean, it was just one Terrible. blow after yeah. another. But somehow he had a way of pouring it into some of the greatest, most beautiful, most yeah. uplifting music. And someone else who died before his time was Mendelssohn, and I see yeah. you've chosen some Mendelssohn as well. Well, this is another of those pieces that I've done in my interpretation class. And again, it's phenomenally popular. I think the first movement tape uh, on that was a young Chinese violinist who came to play it for me. And I think, again, it's over 480,000 people around the world have watched it. So I thought... Uh, and this is one of my students playing, Stefan Jakov. He's become now, this was when he was 14 years old, and uh, now he's 31, I think, and he's coming back to play with the, with the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra this year as a master. But in those days, he was a child playing this music, exquisitely beautiful. I think if we heard the first movement or some of the first movement, it would give you a sense of how special he was. And if people are interested in finding out more about Mendelssohn and about this piece, go online, Interpretations of Music and Lessons in Life, and you'll find many different songs and, and, and pieces and get a deeper understanding of how music works. So let's listen to the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. That was part of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with Stephen Jacob. Stefan. Stefan Jacob. Jacob. Yeah. He's a boy from, from Boston, and uh, his, father's, his parents are both professors, very distinguished professors at MIT, and he was a boy who came up through my youth orchestra, and when he was 14 years old, I took him to 
London to play with the Philharmonia Orchestra, which is extraordinary. And at the end of the rehearsal, one of the cellists came to me and said, you know, I've been in this orchestra 25 years. I've heard all the major violinists. This is the most beautiful yeah. Mendelssohn Let's I've ever Let's just heard. talk about that for a moment because child prodigies are something very special. Yeah. And there have been many of them in the history of music yeah. and unbelievable prodigies. Yeah. I, w I often wonder why it's in music that they happen rather than, let's say, art or literature. Yeah. Why is it that we have so many in music? Well, it's think? a great question, and it's true. It's one of the reasons why um, the youth orchestra that I'm conducting now, the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, which has 12-year-olds in it, 12, 13, 14, up to 21, can play music. And maybe we should play a little of the opening of the Ninth Symphony of Mahler, which we took on tour to Europe, to all the major concert halls. It doesn't sound like a no. child's orchestra. And the reason is because young people can get themselves inside music with guidance. They don't yeah. do it necessarily on their own, but with guidance they can play with utmost depth and color and understanding. They love the music because the music is directly related to their emotions. So they, it's, it goes directly into their DNA without going through the intellect. And I think it's true that some of the greatest performances, I mean, Elgar Violin Concerto played by many at yeah. the age of 15 has never been yeah. surpassed. And also, you know, I sang in a, a cathedral choir in England in my years there, right. where we had 12 boys aged between 8 and 13. And they were unbelievable. They were professional yeah. musicians. Right. Right. And they were unbelievable. And they could reach an incredible yeah, heights right. of perfection. Well, yeah. I was a boy soprano when yeah. I was at school. I was the lead soprano in my school. Uh, as a funnily enough, as a Jewish person, actually I'm an atheist, but still I sang every day in, in yeah. chapel yeah. with full fervor. That music is so beautiful, and it's true. With a good conductor, you, young people can be the drawn. Sky's the limit. Yeah, yeah. It's sky's the limit. And the same applies to orchestras. Yeah. Yeah. So let's listen to the opening of the last movement of the Ninth Symphony of Gustav Mahler, one of the most demanding, spiritually challenging pieces of music, just a section of it. And this is your youth orchestra. And this orchestra. is my youth orchestra. We took it on tour to Vienna and the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam and Berlin, all the places where Mahler worked in Hungary and in Salzburg and, and, and went to his hometown and played there. Oh, it was just the most a pilgrimage of Mahler. And here they are playing the opening of The Last Moment. That was the last movement of the Symphony No. 9 by Gustav Mader, played by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, conducted by Benjamin Zander. Are we allowed to talk about the fact that you're hoping to bring your orchestra to South Africa? I was very much hoping you would bring up the subject. We're definitely going to come to South Africa, whether it's this year or next year, has not finally been decided. But my hope is that I will bring them here in June. And if they come... Everybody is going to be so thrilled, not only by their playing, but their whole way of being, the way they look, the way they talk, the way they relate to people. There's a joyousness, there's an effervescence of passion, a confidence in them, which we have really trained them in. We've trained them in the art of possibility. And so when we go on tour, we don't take adults to look after them. They look after themselves. We get we have some adults to get them on the bus on time, but they look after themselves and they are 
great human beings, even the very, very young ones, maybe especially the very young ones, they write beautifully, they speak beautifully, and they play like angels. And this is the thing. I think if you give people opportunities, they will take them. Right. And I'm 80 now, and I'm thinking, you know, what is the most valuable thing I can do for the last period of my life? And certainly being with young people, teaching young people, passing on what I've learned in my life from all the experiences I've had. You know, with the Beethoven Ninth, I had a long relationship with a great uh, South African, Stuart Young. We must have exchanged a thousand emails about the Beethoven Ninth, and we've come up with an interpretation of the Beethoven Ninth which is revolutionary, which is stunning, which is exciting, challenging, shocking, because it does exactly what Beethoven wanted. And I've had so many extraordinary people in my life with whom I've connected, and that's what I want to pass on now, and I'm having the best time doing it. And, and what is wonderful is that you've had quite a strong connection with South Africa. Yeah, I've been six times. Yeah. I love this country. Which is really very special for us, yeah. and I'm sure special for you Well, you too. know what's really important for the South Africans to remember, and never to forget, this is a country that was built on a possibility idea, the idea of peoples living together in harmony. And that's what Mandela meant, and he led it. And it's our job to keep it going, to remind ourselves constantly to speak in possibility, not to get overwhelmed by depression and anxiety and fear, but really to speak the possibility and take the long view. Mandela spent 27 years in jail. He was not in a hurry. Thinking. Thinking. And even when they let him out after 15 years, he said, no, I've got to stay another 12 and to keep the vision alive. That's the most inspiring idea. And the least we can do is to keep that song alive and sing it loud and clear. I've been talking to Benjamin Zander about the art of possibility. He's been visiting South Africa. He was here to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award which is a wonderful tribute to him because the other people that have received it have been Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. That's quite a lineage, I have to say. <laughs> but thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you for talking to us. And thank you for all that you do to inspire people, to instill wonderful musical skills in your youth orchestra, and for telling us what is possible. Wonderful. It's a great joy to be with you, Richard.